The following talk is given by Tara Brock, meditation teacher, psychologist, and author. Good evening. This is a quiet group. You are very, you settled very quickly, and I'm aware that many of you inside might think oh, I'm the furthest thing from settled, but the room seems really, really quiet. And I'm aware that so we've done our two days now, and you know a lot of the outside distractions are removed for you, and. You know, there's a slowing down. I mentioned that that for me, if when I go half as fast, I can kind of sense twice as much. And um, just listening and and being you know in conversation with so many of you, there's a lot more awareness, both of the present moment and also of what gets layered in the present moment, which is often um, some of the challenging layers that we haven't attended to. So there can sometimes be a kind of grimness in, in a grimness in moving through, you know, and, and that you can see that at retreats. That, that at least initially, it's like this is serious business, and it reminded me of a story I'd heard about Ajahn Chah. He was from the Thai tradition, visiting the Insight Meditation Society, which does the Burmese style of walking, which, as some of you know, is very very slow and so um, he stopped he, he stopped a few yogis when he was visiting there and he said to them kind of sympathetically but also with this kind of naughty mischievous look he said I hope you heal from your illness and can go home soon <laughs> <laughs> and it can look like like this we've got this problem that we're solving and it you know and this is something that I'm sensing is going on. There's also this growing interest, this interest in how this all is unfolding. I mean, it is an adventure. The more we become present, the more it gets out of the domain of our ego's understanding and control. It gets very interesting. So what we end up engaging with, as um, Pat described so beautifully last night, these um, challenging energies that are entirely well-intended, they're intended for our survival, and yet when we get identified with them, okay, when we get caught up in the, I've got to have this, and this is bad, and I don't want that, and the doubt, whatever, when our identity becomes organized around these energies, we suffer. And they, they obscure who we are, our identity. We think we're something smaller than we are. That's the suffering. So what I'd like to do tonight is continue this inquiry. The, the question often is that very simple one of what is really between me and presence? are between me and love right now. So if we're wanting to begin to investigate, if we're wanting to sense what we've been running away from, what we haven't been noticing, 
What's right here? What's between me and presence right this moment? What we find, I mean, you might ask that question right now and sense, okay, so, and you might say, hmm, pretty present. But you also might sense that there's some habitual layers of tension that are there a lot, as one friend here brought up. There's a kind of continual sense of contraction. In the Tibetan tradition, they call it shempa, this kind of stickiness or tightness that's very existential. It's this kind of our separate self perceiving its precariousness in the universe. At least that's one of the ways I think about it. I think of it kind of it's part of our evolutionary heritage, this contraction we so often encounter that we're incarnated in a way so as to perceive separation, that that's part of our rigging. We just, that's the way we can come out. And so we get identified with these patterns of wanting and fearing. We just, our, our identity shrinks. And that with that shrinking, there's a tension. There's something that's pulled away from the fullness. So we live with a kind of chronic existential tension. And that's not the end of the evolutionary story, because here we are. And you would not be here if you did not in some way perceive a belonging to or a truth that's larger than the identity that you might uh, move around in much of the day. We, we, we intuit it. So some months ago, I read a very well-known Christian parable, and it returned to the prodigal son. How many of you are not familiar with the story, Return of the Prodigal Son? Can I just see by hands? Don't be shy. Okay, that's helpful to me to know. Well, it's a wonderful um, illustration of how we leave home. In other words, how we contract into a smaller identity and, and suffer, and then the return back again to this realization of who we really are. So I want to revisit this. Uh, I talked about it once on a Wednesday night, this, this teaching. So it's a Christian teaching that we'll be exploring here in this Jewish retreat center, being a Buddhist group, and then at the end of the evening we'll do a Hindu chant and just, you know, bring it all in. Why not? So the um, inspiration for me is this book, Return of the Prodigal Son by Henri Nouwen. Nouwen? I think that's how you pronounce his name, Nouwen. So he um, interprets this in a beautiful way. And um, he does it, he, he himself encountered a, the Rembrandt painting that's on the, front, on the front cover of this, of the parable, and it changed his life. Over 10 years, he kept revisiting the painting and meditating on the story, the parable, and, um, and deep kind of experience. First, I'll read the parable, and then I'll tell you a little more about how it f was liberating for him. So here we go. This is Jesus speaking. There was a man who had two sons, the younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. 
Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had and set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth and wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to, the, to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I'll set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a finger on his ring and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you killed the fatted calf for him. My son, the father said, You are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So when Henri Nouwen he already knew the parable. He's a Christian contemplative, Catholic priest and writer, taught at Harvard, at Yale. But when he, in 1983, uh, saw Rembrandt's rendering, and it's considered one of the greatest, probably the greatest of Rembrandt's paintings, um, it, was a tra- it was a spiritual transmission. And he was, mo- he was struck by this, uh, the beauty in the posture of compassion of the father blessing his son. I've left uh, two pictures up on the altar of uh, the father blessing his son. I thought it'd be good to put it on the altar with Kuan Yin just to mix things up a little more (laughs) with gender and so on. So really what happened to Henri was that he felt his own longing to be received in that way to be able to bring his imperfectness into that awareness that's so loving and so forgiving that he would know his belonging. And um, now when I look at that, the pictures, it brings up tears in me often. 
And it feels like some ancient longing that no matter how I am, that this beingness can be embraced by something larger, which is, in fact, the, the message of the parable. So for, for Henri, for 10 years, he would go back and visit this picture, and he found in his journey that he knew the suffering of the younger son. He knew how he left home like the younger son, and the younger son is really the one that's searching for love in all the wrong places, that that's leaves, leaves home to go somewhere else to try to find love or safety or gratification. It's that in us which um, strives for success or approval or whatever to try to feel better about who we are. So this is the younger son. So he could see that in himself actually quite easily. And he also, over time, saw that he was also the older son, the one who, who, did, who left home in a different way by locking into anger and judgment. The sons are... The first, the younger son is grasping and wanting. The older son is aversion. Okay. So, over the years, he experienced this radical spiritual transformation by investigating the ways he left home, the archetypes of these two sons, and by discovering how to let in or allow love, forgiveness, acceptance compassion, how to let it in. And in that process, he became the father. By letting in love, he became the father that could bless himself and other beings. So what we have here is that really the practicing of the two wings of awareness, that he was recognizing his egoic ways of leaving home, grasping an aversion, and he was learning how to let that be held in love. Okay, is this familiar to you, the two wings? Okay, the wing of recognizing or understanding or seeing what's here in the moment. The question is, what is happening this moment? And then the wing of love. And can I be with this? Can I allow this unconditionally? And when we ask these two questions, we wake up awareness. Now, what I was interested in, what I found most moving in uh, the parable and in the interpretation and in my own investigation was the centrality of letting in love. Absolute loving awareness is non-directional. Just, just a unified field. It's the essence of what we are. But when we're contracted, when we're caught in fear, when we're armored, then if you think of it like a, a sea anemone, you know, it's like there's this contraction. The ocean can't wash in and out. Love can't come in and out so smoothly. We're, we're boundaried and bordered and solidified. So when we're contracted, it becomes part of our resolving and relaxing and opening to let in love. And yet if you ask yourself, can I really let in love? becomes a powerful question. I mean, we do these practices here of loving kindness and forgiveness and compassion, how to arouse, how, how to arouse it, how to receive it. And yet you might have noticed that we can try to offer ourselves, and only maybe a little bit, 
sense the softening or the receiving. And I'm talking in a visceral way. Only a little bit let love wash through. When we're caught in egoic state of wanting or fearing, there is an armoring that makes it hard. Many of you know that I lost my mom about three weeks ago. And one of the most profound parts of accompanying her over this last year or so was to see her get more transparent. That as she got closer to dying, and it's been happening over a few years, but I really noticed it, especially the last six months, um, a lot of her personality, ego structure became just more porous, more transparent. It's like her love flowed out in a more natural way and she let it in more. I mean, her gratitude, her capacity to feel love, you could just feel it. It was just things were washing in and out. And it really struck me that the people around her, because when somebody's ego gets less uh, tight, it, it, of course, it's contagious. <laughs> You know, so those around her, we, it was kind of being in this loving field. And it really struck me how often it is that we talk about, uh, we might, you might bring to mind someone that you know is very dear to you, and we say, oh yes, I love that person, they love me. But what happens when we really reflect on it? And I just invite you just to take a moment to bring to mind someone that's dear to you. And sense that they love you. And then just with interest, begin to sense, so what does it feel like to really let in their love? in a visceral way, embodied. Is there a felt sense of that? Other languaging for letting in might be allowing or dissolving into. Can you relax into that wash of loving? The second wing is so important, and yet when we investigate, it becomes a really an area that, that actually requires attention. You can open your eyes if you'd like. I was struck by um, hearing about Harville Hendricks and Helen LaKelly Hunt, and they're very known for their work with relationships. Many of you have probably heard of them. And they, um, when they're in the midst of this about eight years ago, writing their book that's out now on receiving love and on relationships, their, their whole marriage was crumbling. And people didn't know it at the time, but that's what was happening. And they were on the verge of divorce since they were trying to get to the root of what was going on. And one day in their bedroom, she asked him, um, do you believe I love you? And he thought about it for a couple of seconds. She says, no, I don't think you do. And, um, you know, she was very distraught. She said, you know, given all the 
I do for you in our life together, how could you not know how much I love you? And he, under, he knew his feelings were irrational. Um, but he said it was like, it didn't matter how much he did, he always felt there were strings attached. He just did not trust it. And so um, it became the center place for his attention. Like, what is stopping me from letting in love? And he, he describes in the book different ways we deflect what we actually really long for, how so many of us will get, somebody will say something really nice about us or some praise in some form, and we'll devalue it. It just cannot let it be what it is, you know? Or we'll assume that the other person's insincere, like there are strings attached in some way, or that they're just deluded and dumb. <laughs> they don't get it. They don't get what's wrong with us. And, and this is the one that I really invite you to just, in time, just track a little, that we block love, loving words, loving expressions, in a very physical way by hardening our chest and stomach muscles. It's scary and threatening. What do you think makes it scary and threatening to let in love? I'm just going to leave that one out there. There's all sorts of ways we could relate to that, but it is. So the reason I'm spending some time on this is that the heart of homecoming, this return, our return to really inhabiting our wholeness, our awareness, loving awareness, is some growing trust that love is here. It's already here. We, that we start to let it let this life wash through. We start to loosen that armoring. And you can see how it's described in the parable um, that this that love is here, that, that the father who represents loving awareness, unconditional loving awareness, his son comes home. And by the way, his son's betrayal, his son's leaving home, asking for his half of the estate and so on, at that time in history was like basically saying, you're worth dirt to me, to his relationship with his father. It was a very, very big deal to have a son do that. So he did that, and yet his son returns, and not only does his father say, yes, I accept you back, he celebrates. This is the capacity of awareness. This is joy. Awareness wants, awareness is calling us home, wants us home. This is joy. So he celebrates, and then you see the, in the picture, which is really interesting, his hands on his son's uh, shoulders, and you can see that one hand is much more masculine and muscled and firm, and it's like saying, I affirm you, you know, I bless you, I see you, it's that, that wing, and the other is a much more feminine hand. This is very distinctive, you can, you can see it in the picture, which is more caressing and comforting, it's the feminine side. So this homecoming is to this awareness that is awake, that sees what we are, and totally, tenderly receives us. And then you see the words in the parable, which I think are so beautiful to the older son. You are with me always. All I have is yours. We're one. The Indian teacher Punjaji 
uh, has a has a phrase that's that's very similar that love is always loving you that love is always loving you it's always already here loving you so the big question is how do we trust in loving and so we'll continue to unfold this. I think of this as the alchemy of bodhicitta. You know, bodhi is awakening and citta is his heart-mind. How, does, how do we wake up to trusting that? And so first, just to look a little more closely at the ways we leave home, and then we'll look at the return. And this is hopefully very familiar to you, this way of leaving home by chasing after things. And that for so many of us, we're looking for love and safety and gratification, but we're looking in the wrong places. So there's nothing wrong with wanting, but it gets fixated on substitutes and that we can spend 10, 20, 30, 40 years chasing after uh, approval or wealth or power or having other, you know, consuming or prestige or whatever it is, wanting more. And there's a sense of never enough and wanting more. And so we're basically questing in foreign countries like the younger son. A lot of it is consuming. We're just trying to be more, like something's missing. In one story, a mother's preparing pancakes for her sons, Kevin five, Ryan three. And the boys begin to argue over who would get the first pancake. So the mother saw an opportunity for a moral lesson and said, if Jesus was sitting here, he would say, let my brother have the first pancake. I can wait. Kevin turned to his younger brother and said, Ryan, you can have the first chance at playing Jesus. So we get addicted to substitutes, and here's and what happens, of course, and we know this. This is uh, is that they don't satisfy, and we only need more. That's you just keep on getting addicted, and yet in that process we have forgotten or become separate from our deepest longing. We forget. So the wake up is that it's still not there. We still don't have what we want. And then perhaps we turn to spiritual life and we say, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, and we do it at certain phases of life or because we really get that my way of doing things is not getting me what I want. But then the habit is so deep that it becomes spiritual materialism, which I'm sure is a phrase familiar to most of you. Um, But it's an important phrase because, you know, we get kind of caught in certain habits on the path and we don't see how they're just a more subtle or refined version of wanting mind. So it may be that we come here and we want something from the retreat. We want to have a, a, a question answered, a decision made, or we want something from a meditation. We want to have a certain experience. In any given meditation, you can find yourself tinkering so you can get more peace or more rapture or more collected, but there's a kind of, I want this, I want this. It's How it is right now is not okay. It's not enough. And then there's this wanting to feel good about ourselves as meditators, wanting to feel like we're, 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 we're progressing. And we want others' approval too. You might note how on some level you want to look like you're really very mindfully eating and chewing and swallowing and you're really present 
and I can, I'll confess for myself that I, I joined an ashram, I think I, must, I was like 20, and um, I was really fanatic for a while. And, uh, you know, I've, so I've described myself as a type A yogi type. But I, so I would get up at 2.30 or 2 in the morning, so I'd have an extra hour, an hour and a half to meditate and do yoga and so on before everybody else started. And um, by the time they'd start coming into the meditation hall, I'd be sitting there absolutely still, like completely still, like I had been absorbed in samadhi for hours and hours, and I was completely aware of other people coming in and seeing me completely still, you know, so it was like this kind of self-conscious thing, and, you know, it went on for a while till I realized the tension of that, you know, there is no joy to seeking approval, there's no joy in it, and yet we do it, and we do it most of us a lot and it's not to make it wrong it's just deep in us to want to feel good about ourselves and we do transfer it into spiritual domain so the more we're in the habit of wanting trying to get somewhere better in the moment to moment of a meditation or in the broader sweeps the harder it is to trust that love's already here, that love is loving us right this moment. We can't open to that and begin to feel into it if we're trying to get somewhere. In Greece, there's a shepherd on a hillside watching sheep, playing a guitar, enjoying the clouds drifting over the valley. American tourist somehow or other stumbles upon him. Hey, you could really turn this into something. You know, buy a bit more land, more sheep, own a slaughterhouse, export the meat. Well, what would that do for me? Well, then you could just relax and play the guitar and enjoy the clouds. <laughs> you get the idea. So, this is the younger son, this is wanting mind, and as I shared with one group today, um, if you're beginning to trunk wanting mind and the way you leave home with wanting mind, it's, if you want to note it, I like the note wanting mind wanting. Because if we own wanting mind, then there's just going to be aversion to ourselves for owning it, and then we're just off and running, right? So if you say wanting mind wanting, it's just this universal energy. It just, it's not our wanting, it's just wanting mind wanting. Let's just reflect for a moment, give you a chance to just sense into today or yesterday. And just with some curiosity, sensing this archetype of the younger son that goes to foreign countries just to sense how wanting mind has been wanting here. And it might be in the more overt ways of wanting more food or a certain kind of food or sleep or a certain spot in the room here. Just to, just to notice. Or it may be that you noticed how you wanted approval from others in a group or your own approval trying to get 
your meditation a certain way. And if there's a place where wanting mind had a real stickiness, you might just take some moments with it, just with curiosity, to sense how your body or heart or mind gets when there's wanting and you're identified. knowing that as we get more familiar with the leaving home, that very awareness allows us to return with more ease. So there's wanting mind wanting, the younger son, and then there's the older brother. He stayed at home being dutiful, but internally he left in his judging. So this is the older brothers, the part of us that says something's wrong, brings up fear. And then we go into blaming the other person or ourselves. The older brother's the part of us that rails against injustice um, in an angry way and feels victimized. And they can get resentful or envious of others. You know, Nguyen puts it this way. He says, I want to have fun, to enjoy. I tried so hard, I didn't get what I needed. Others are at fault. It's, it's the part of us that in some way makes ourselves and others wrong. And then the, the strategy of the older brothers, a kind of controlling strategy, you've got to do it my way. It's got a fundamentalism to it with the older brother. Do it my way, agree with me, be like me. So it's judging and controlling others. This came across my email screen a few weeks ago. I was walking across the bridge one day and I saw a man standing on the edge about to jump off. So I ran over and said, stop, don't do it. Why shouldn't I, he said. Well, there's so much to live for. He said, like what? I said, well, are you religious or atheist? He said, religious. I said, me too. Are you Christian or Buddhist? He said, Christian. I said, me too. Are you Catholic or Protestant? He said, Protestant. I said, me too. Are you Episcopalian or Baptist? He said, Baptist. Wow, me too. Are you Baptist Church of God or Baptist Church of the Lord? He said, Baptist Church of God. I said, me too. Are you Baptist Church of God or are you Reformed Baptist Church of God? He said, Reformed Baptist Church of God. Me too. Are you Reformed Baptist Church of God, Reformed of... Reformation of 1879 or Reformed Baptist Church of God Reformation of 1915? He said, Reformed Baptist Church of God Reformation of 1915. I said, die, heretic scum, and I pushed him off. (laughs) You get the idea, I know. So we judge others. We dice it really thin, but we still judge others. And we judge ourselves. And probably that's the most painful part of the older brother is the self-condemnation. And um, you can see it at retreat a lot. The 
basically the second, the older brother is the second arrow. And what I mean by that is if we take the basic parable, if you're shot with one arrow, whatever the experience is, it could be fear or hurt or jealousy or whatever the wounding is, would you then want to shoot that same wound with a second arrow? Of course not, but that's what we do. And the second arrow is judging ourselves for the first arrow. So we feel fear and then we feel bad personhood for feeling fear. We feel anger and then we condemn ourselves for feeling anger. We feel jealousy and then we hate ourselves for feeling jealous. It's adding aversion to the first arrow. So at retreat, we can second arrow ad infinitum because we're getting so aware. We get aware of how we've second arrowed and then we judge ourselves for that and that's the third arrow. <laughs> so it can go on and on and on. So again, as with wanting mind, wanting, this is fearing mind, fearing, or the aversive mind doing its thing. And just take a moment to check in so you can identify where uh, the second brother archetype has been active for you. You just might notice, even if you just simplify it to where you got caught in aversive judgment towards yourself or others. And if there's a a place that has some stickiness, just let it inform you that this is leaving home. Sense how your body and mind and heart feel when you're judging. Who you sense yourself to be when you're judging. And see if you can, without adding any other judgment, just let that be something that you're familiar, getting more familiar with, that this is leaving home. And we'll begin to look at the return. Open your eyes as you'd like. That both Henry Nowen and Buddhist teachings then invite us to recognize leaving, recognize the pain of leaving. Recognize the pain of leaving. This is the the wing of recognition. And then let in love, let in forgiveness, let in compassion. So these are the two wings and you can see it if you look at the part, we go back to the parable for a moment, you can see with the younger brother how, you know, he got in touch with his feeling of unworthiness, I do not deserve to be your son, and yet there's that longing to come home and that turning towards home. And it came out of that longing. And like the younger brother, we, it might be we've gone through decades of it, but we get it that we've been fixated on substitutes. And I suspect there's not one person here that doesn't have a longing to let go of the substitutes and really rest in what matters. 
that, that all of us in some way are wanting to turn towards home. And really what it comes down to is what voice we're listening to or believing in. I mean, are we believing the voices that are saying to us, I need to do more of this to be okay? I need to accomplish more. I need that person's approval. I need to get just this done. And then I'll really open up into my... It's like, what voice are we listening to? Are we listening to the if only voice? If only this happens and that happens, then I can da-da-da-da? Are we listening to the longing? It's why we place so much emphasis on aspiration to start having us listen to the longing. Okay, this is uh, Mary Oliver's very famous poem, The Journey. One day you finally knew what you had to do and began, though the voices around you kept shouting their bad advice, though the whole house began to tremble and you felt the old tug at your ankles. Men, my life, each voice cried, but you didn't stop. You knew what you had to do, though the wind pried with its stiff fingers at the very foundations, though their melancholy was terrible. It was already late enough in a wild night and the road full of fallen branches and stones. But little by little, as you left their voices behind, the stars began to burn through the sheets of clouds, and there was a new voice which you slowly recognized as your own that kept you company as you strode deeper and deeper into the world determined to do the only thing you could do, determined to save the only life you could save. So each of us as uh, Pat described the limbic energies, each of us has these voices coming from the limbic energies of wanting and fearing. And the question is, do we listen or do we start doing this tracing back the longing back to its source? I want to give you uh, an example of someone who instead of continuing to travel in foreign lands, started to trace back the longing, returning home, as in the prodigal son. And this was um, a contemporary figure, a social activist, who's actually come to some of our retreats, and very into dialogue and peacemaking, collaboration. Really, really busy person, little time for family, life out of balance. So we were exploring the drivenness, and that's where the voices were saying, men my life. You know, every voice was saying, men my life. There's so much to do, all these different opportunities. And there was a part of him that wanted to stay relevant and stay leveraged in the field. So it wasn't, his ego was saying, you know, keep me inflated also. But the basic pressure was do more, do more. And underneath that, this, this sense of, urgency and anxiety and real fear that he'd fall short, that he wouldn't be the person he thought he should be. Okay, so that's the kind of setup. So we began to do this tracing back. And um, tracing back is another way of saying, bring the attention right to what's real and happening in your body. 
So for him, the tracing back was, you know, he'd say, I want to make a difference, I want to accomplish, feel the wanting, feel the wanting itself. And so he'd go in and he'd feel the wanting and it had kind of a leaning forward. This, if you feel wanting, it's often like this. And then I kept saying, what is the wanting wanting to experience? What is it really wanting to experience? If you accomplish and accomplish, then what would you get to experience that you really want? That's a way of actually going deeper into the wanting. What do you really want to experience? And so as he started to feel into the want directly, he started feeling into this longing. He said, you know, what I really want, I just want to relax into loving. I want to be able to relax into loving. It's almost like if I can do, 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 I can relax into loving. I can trust loving. So I kept having him go deeper into that longing. And I even asked him, well, what would that be like if you got to experience what you longed for? And he described this pure goodness of there just he wasn't there and it was just loving. He kept saying over and over again, I love goodness. I love goodness. So his process would be, and this because this is never a one shot. Remember neural pathways, right? We got strong neural pathways and do more, do more in order to then be able to relax. So he'd have that the voices going, do more, do more, and then he'd say, Okay, trace it back. What do you want? What do you really want? What do you really want to feel? I want to relax into loving. What would that be like? Ah, if you can imagine it, it's yours. Begin to imagine it, what you're longing for. So like the younger brother, like this man, this is the practice of the two wings of sensing, you know, beginning to recognize more and more wanting mind and what we're going after and then the angst of it and underneath that the longing and then opening to where the loving is, opening. Now, what about aversion that so quickly gets added to wanting mind? Have you noticed how quickly when you're wanting, you then judge yourself for wanting? Have you? Yeah, okay. So the older brother is basically saying, I'm bad, you're bad, something's wrong. And I want to read you, this is Henri Nouwen saying, Self-rejection is the greatest enemy of the spiritual life because it contradicts the sacred voice that calls us the beloved. Being the beloved expresses the core truth of our existence. To gently push aside and silence the many voices that question my goodness and to trust that I will hear the voice of blessing, that demands real effort. So again... What are we listening to? Are we believing the voices saying you're bad? Are we listening more deeply? And it takes a real commitment uh, in working. He, he describes the older brothers, the more difficult one for him to really hold in love because the aversion, the very biochemistry of aversion says, love, I'm blocking love. I'm not into love right now. Have you ever, when you're really, really afraid or really angry, tried to make an effort towards metta or love or forgiveness? It's a jump. It, it's an idea at first. 
So how do you really make that, that shift? How do you turn towards home? And the first step is, the flag is to not believe blame. No matter what, it can feel real, it can feel justified, just don't believe it. Here's, here's to me one of the quotes I really like, and this is another Christian teacher. I'm on a Christian uh, jag right now. So um, this is Anthony DeMello. The visitor says, My life is like shattered glass. My soul is tainted with evil. Is there any hope for me? Yes, said the master. There is something whereby each broken thing is bound again and every stain made clean. What? Forgiveness. Whom do I forgive? Everyone. Life, God, your neighbor, especially yourself. How is that done? By understanding that no one is to blame, said the Master. No one. By understanding that no one is to blame. If we can go under the ideas of you're wrong or I'm wrong, then we can touch into the vulnerability that's there. And if we can touch into the vulnerability that's there, what we'll find is the fears and the doubts of our basic safety, our basic worth. And many of you uh, know the Buddhist story of touching the ground that when, when he was really assaulted by doubt, this basic mistrust that so many of us carry of our basic okayness or goodness, his response was to reach down and touch the ground and call on the earth goddess. And I really love this part of the myth of the Buddha because you know, here Mara, the god of the shadow side, was, was trying everything out on him. And the Buddha was basically waking up pretty well through most of the challenges, but doubt was the big one. And that's when he called on the earth goddess. He reached out to a larger belonging. He reached out to affirm a larger belonging, and it was when he reached out that he was actually able to connect with that love, that presence, that trust, where Mara dissolved, Mara vanished. Mara returned again now and then, but not, didn't challenge the Buddha's sense of, of freedom, didn't contract his identity. So the last very piece of this that I'd like to explore with you about letting in love is that it's really powerful to reach out, to feel out of that longing um, a kind of prayerfulness I'll give you uh, an example from my own life where this um, was really clear. And I'm, I'm talking now, getting caught in the older brother, judgment, blame, doubt, and how reaching out made a difference, okay? So uh, this happened about four or five years ago. It's not ancient history, where I was um, about to do a presentation in San Diego and I arrived in the airport and the um, cab driver 
a Latino man with very poor English, and I said, I need to get to this hotel in San Diego. And he says, yes, yes, I know where it is, I know where it is. Get in the car, and um, it's about 30 minutes away where I was going. And after about an hour, it was clear that he was completely lost and he was getting more distressed and he was driving more quickly and, you know, it was, it was a very bad scene. So, at one, and we, finally, at one point, he realized that he was going in the wrong direction and so what he did was he um, turned really quickly onto the highway to try to get in the other direction, but he went on the... On, he entered the highway on the wrong side, so we had all these headlights coming at us. So he, he, he swerved over the meridian and went back the other way. But so for about 10 seconds, we were driving on a highway in California going against the traffic. And so m- my body got uptight. I got, <laughs> I got really, really uptight. Anyway, so within about... Ten minutes, we arrived at the hotel, and I was in kind of a surreal state by that time. I was—I went from panic to this like detached, removed place, where it was just very appropriate that I wasn't wasn't supposed to pay for this ride. I was an hour and 15 minutes late, and I had almost died, and all that. And um, so I looked him in the eye, and I shook my head, and I'm saying, "I'm sorry. You have to understand, I can't pay for this." Uh, you know, it's cause, as if I was saddened by this errant man's fate that, you know, well, this is just how it is. Then I got to my hotel room and something was wrong. I was in one of those, okay, what's between me and presence? And there was like, a, uh, my heart was really squeezed and my body was agitated. And I was still running the story of this is the way things are. He did this and I did that. It was my story. But when I went under it, again, no one is ever at fault. never believe blame because when I went under it it was pure shame like almost the most undiluted intense shame I had felt in a very very long time I was my narrative or identity was in a very small minded mean bad person Um, so this was I, I had like gone into the older brother trance without even like a flicker of, of recognition. You know, the voice in me was in some way he needs to learn a lesson and if he doesn't, you know, I can't pay him and encourage him to be, you know, it was just so. Anyway, it was really the um, trance of an entitled punitive superior. Um, you know, I'm being taken somewhere. I'm trying to give you a sense of it because I feel like it was part, in part the blindness of the dominant culture. It was kind of white privilege not realizing at all, like nothing in my psyche was taking in what it would be like to be him. Second language, you know, poor family, new on the job. So shame and doubt, like good person, my good personhood was deeply in doubt. I was very doubtful about it. So I named it, this is suffering, ouch. And that's a really important, if you have to contact where the pain is and the rawness is. The beginning of love, of any availability of love, is this honest recognizing and contacting the rawness. So, okay, this is suffering, pain. And in that suffering, there's this longing to find some way to... um, some way to opening my heart, some way to feeling loved, to feeling forgiven, whatever the words are 
there was that prayer. I began to say, I'm sorry, and I love you. And those are That's a phrase from a Hawaiian healer that I found very valuable, and over and over say it to myself and to him. But I was, and, you know, and I often do this. I had my hands on my heart, so I was doing what I knew to do to be forgiven, and it wasn't enough. And so I called on love. You know, I called on whatever... I can describe as imagining as the field of love that's bigger than anything my ego could imagine. Because it was still my self feeling bad and trying to offer comfort to a self. It wasn't deep enough. So it was like a calling on love and, and then sensing, okay, what would it feel like if I really had love loving me? And I just started sensing this porousness, like it could really wash in. And not only that, as it washed in more and more, I sensed that inside the shame itself there was this space and that the love was coming out of the space too. So it was kind of continuous space and then shame was just a current floating in it. I don't know how well this is making sense, but it was washing in and also coming from within until I realized once again that loving presence is what I am and shame and doubt and the older brother conditioning are currents that float in it. They're like waves in the ocean. But that shift wouldn't have happened if there wasn't some prayerfulness. And the reason I'm bringing up prayerfulness is because in the moments that we really let ourselves long for compassion or forgiveness or love, we get very porous. It undoes the ego structure. Prayer is almost counter conditions the egoic self that's doing or wanting or fearing. It starts deconstructing. And then there's a sense that we can let love wash in, there's a sense that there's already space and love is emanating, and then there's a sense that there was always there. Love is always loving us, but we were just located in the small self, not in that loving presence. If you want to explore um, praying, Tracing back, you know, tracing back, feeling the, the rawness, feeling the longing, praying from the longing. The deeper you go into, the deeper you root into the rawness of vulnerability, the more powerful the branches of prayer. Saying prayer, saying, please love me. Please forgive me. And then most important, imagining you're getting what you're praying for. Imagine it. This is, Jesus says, everything you ask and pray for, trust that if you have it already and it will be yours. Love is always loving you. So the alchemy of bodhicitta, of awakening our hearts, what we have is that it's kind of a tautology that our essence is loving presence and that if we can call on some of that love and presence and bring it to the waves of experience, we dissolve open back into loving presence. 
In other words, we are calling on what we are to awaken to what we are. Is that clear? (laughs) Okay. I want to uh, close with a meditation on letting in love, just to practice a little together. Just take take us a few minutes over and uh, give you a chance to either explore the younger brother or the older brother, grasping our version, just get a taste of this, and then if you find it to your liking, you can practice on your own. In the stillness, just sense your own way to relax back and sense what's right here. Take a few moments to let the awareness be at the brow, point between the eyebrows, and just soften, let spread out and smooth the brow area, let the eyes be soft. So that if you could imagine the sky above, you could imagine the mind merging with sky, and a real openness both at the brow and the crown chakra, top rear of the head, just real openness, energy. Feel your heart, feel exactly how your heart is and sense the heart space that has room for that. and softening the belly so that you can feel the aliveness deep into the torso. And allow yourself to bring to mind a situation or experience where you, in some way, feel cut off from love. Or either caught in wanting things a certain way, fearing, situation where you'd want more intimacy, more connection. You can let yourself feel the absence, whether it's in the form of hurt or fear or emptiness or loneliness. even a numbness that you know is separating you. So you can sense what I sometimes call the ouch, or that there is this pain of separation. 
might sense inside the pain to where there is some yearning or longing, some desire, heart desire, to be seen or understood, to be loved, to be held in love, to be loved as you are. And it may be that the longing is for a particular person to love you, and it's fine to start with that. Just explore shifting of it so that rather than focusing on the person, you can feel just the energy of your longing, this bodily feeling of wanting to be loved just as you are. Really wanting to be embraced exactly as you are understood, safe, cared about. Just letting that longing be there. And let it be as big as it is so you can feel it. Maybe that's not something you've explored before. With some interest, just say, okay, longing, be as big as you are this heart's yearning to really feel loved. To feel utterly seen or forgiven or cared about. Just sense the possibility that you can say yes to receiving love. That this is your intention, your willingness. And you can explore and sense, can you feel the presence of love available? Is it anywhere close by? And if so, Just let it enter. See if you can soften and let it flow in. Let your cells be bathed. Sensing love as a field that's permeating and surrounding. Imagine getting what you're longing for. And if there's no presence nearby, you can just mentally whisper, please love me. I want to feel loved. I want to feel safe seen, embraced. Pray for what you pray for with sincerity. Please love me. And if there's resistance, which is natural, just be gentle with it. It's all information. It's all useful. Is it possible to soften a little more and let love that's always and already here wash through? 
Is it possible to dissolve into love? The softening the boundaries of the body, just to melt, relax, let go. To rest in love, to be love. Closing with the poem, just a short verse from Michelle Rivers. When words stop, you can hear the songs of the sea. In silence, lean on each other. We're together in the same boat. Gently let all movements bring you closer to the divine current, the all-embracing sea. Waves break, the oyster melts with love. Look what happens when you let go. Namaste and thank you for your attention. The teaching you have received has been freely offered. If you'd like to make a donation, learn more about my schedule or programs offered by the Insight Meditation Community of Washington, please visit tarabrock.com and our imcw.org.